Welcome to recordings from We the People, Race in America, the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing's 2016 Fall Writer Series. In this series of five events, people from diverse backgrounds, working in different genres, read or performed their work and then discussed it with attentive audiences. What follows is the first event in that series, public theologian Jim Wallace talking about his most recent New York Times bestselling book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. This is the extended recording of the event. It includes the presentation by Wallace, responses from community members, and questions from the audience. It was recorded in the Covenant Fine Arts Center Auditorium on the campus of Calvin College on September 12, 2016. Thank you very much. It's great to be back at Calvin College. I haven't been here for a long, long time. But when I went and passed the, the big yard today, the student, all the students on the grass, it uh, reminded me of the last campus I was at, which was taking my older son Luke to college two weeks ago. And I'm still kind of dealing with that, you know, as they say. And so I've been thinking about Luke a lot and uh, and I thought about a story about him that I thought I would start with tonight. So my wife, Joy Carroll, who was with me in Detroit until this morning, was one of the first women ordained in the Church of England many years ago. And um, she, we were at a big music festival in the UK. Uh, it's arts and justice. and So I got now my son Luke on my lap and he's sitting there watching his mother up on stage, and she's doing the Eucharist for 25,000 British young people. And he looks at her, and she's telling them things, and they're listening, and she says, the Lord be with you, and they say back, and also with you, and she, they do whatever she tells them to do. And my little boy, four years old, looks up at me and says, Dad? Can men do that too? <laughs> so, for our son Luke and then Jack, women providing leadership in the church was changing the narrative. So we'll start with, with that changing the narrative, or as my boys would say, let's get the story right. So I want you to think for a minute, imagine everything you've heard in this presidential election year about racial resentment, racial bigotry, stoking of racial fears, Think of all those words, all those conversations, all that conflict. Put all those words in your ears just for a moment. Remember them. In the midst of all that, Genesis 1.26 says, Keep the words in your head. Then God said, then God said, 
Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, the better word there is stewardship, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, the word there, imago Dei. He created them. But at the founding of our nation, it was the Christians, British, American. Now, I'm a Christian, but Christians have got to tell the truth about what Christians have done in the past that's wrong. So the Christians said, we can't do to indigenous people what we are doing, stealing their land and their lives, and we can't do to kidnap Africans we want to do to build the biggest economic resource to start this nation. We can't do those things to human beings made in the image of God. Can't do that. So to do those things to those people, we've got to say somehow that they are less than human. We have to dehumanize them. And the original sin of America is not the slavery. Oh, we white folks, we like it to be slavery because, you know, my, my grandparents never had slaves. My people came later and this has nothing to do with me. It's over now, right? No, there were other slaveries before ours. Greeks were slaves to the Romans. But the Greek slaves taught the Roman elite children. Taught them. No one said they were less than human. No one destroyed their families. But to do what we were going to do, we had to throw away Imago Dei. Throw away the image of God. So the Black Lives Matter movement isn't just an exciting young movement of activists. I was with them in Detroit yesterday, the Black Youth Project there. It is that. But it's really striking at the heart of the bad theology at the founding of this nation. Now, I know at Calvin, you guys care about theology. So we're going to start with theology. America's original sin was overturning Genesis chapter 1, contradicting the purpose of God. He said, let us make them in our image so they can have dominion or stewardship over all the creation. But one people said, no, we're going to have dominion over other people. That contradicts Genesis 1, the story from the beginning 
we contradicted it. So our founding principle as a nation, now listen to this, our founding principle as a nation was indigenous lives and black lives don't matter. That's where the nation began. Now, Brian Stevenson, who's premier mass incarceration lawyer in the country, Brian says slavery never ended, it just evolved. Mass incarceration now is, is the newest evolution. So we've been having these town meetings. We turned a book tour into a town meeting tour. Had one in Detroit yesterday. Uh, lots of people from Detroit came all over the city. They have been very multiracial, multicultural, very gender inclusive, and very intergenerational, which is the best part. A lot of young people coming. And when you get the right people in the room and have a serious, honest conversation, things happen like some good white person says, what do you mean, white privilege? And a young Af African-American kid says, well, if you don't see it, you got it. <laughs> you get the right people in the room for the conversation. So I've been having all these conversations. And to be honest, uh, I walk out of the room feeling really hopeful about the honesty that we've had, about the hunger for change, about how a new generation wants their lives to make a difference in the world. And then I go home and turn on the news in the hotel room. It's a whole different conversation. It's alarming. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's and, and there are two conversations. One is happening at the grassroots that wants to change these things, and the other is really, um, well, as, as an old guy told me in North Carolina, dying donkeys kick the hardest. And so now we have a whole conversation where what is often explicit in elections, implicit, is now explicit. What was overt, covert, is now overt. What dog whistles of code language have become bullhorns and people are afraid for their kids. And let me be just right from the start say probably the line in the book that draws the most conversation that needs to be unpacked every time is all I said was if white Christians acted more Christian than white Black parents would be less fearful for their children. That's all. So I've been a Little League baseball coach for a long time, 11 years, 22 seasons, and every black player I ever had coached, every black player has had their mom or dad have the talk. Head shaking, you know what I mean by the talk. How to behave in the presence of a police officer with a gun. Every black player, I don't care if they're low income or sons of the top DC lawyers, doesn't matter. They're African American, they have the talk. 
Not one white player I've ever had has ever had that talk with their parents, and hardly any white parents even know what's going on to have that talk. I decided to write this book when Trayvon Martin actually was killed in Sanford, Florida, because I knew if America was honest, they would, they would admit that if my son, who is now playing college baseball, big, strong, six-foot kid, if he'd been in Sanford, Florida, same time, same night, doing the same things Trayvon was doing, everyone knows he would have come back to me in joy. But Trayvon didn't come back to his parents and isn't going to college this fall. And then we took um, Jack, our 13-year-old, to England for Christmas this year, and, and, uh, and he, he was a big 12-year-old, five foot seven and a half, he'd tell you. <laughs> and everybody saw him, and they said, Jack, you're so big and strong and athletic and good-looking. No one said, Jack, you're scary. You're threatening. No one said that. While we were in the UK, the news came across the, the big pond that, that the police officer who shot young 12-year-old Tammy Rice in Cleveland would not go to trial. And I read to Jack on a British couch the words of the prosecutor who said, yeah, but he was, he was a big 12-year-old. He was five foot seven and a half. Now I know that part from Cleveland, and I know my son Jack Wallace wouldn't have been shot after a police officer drove up after two seconds. I was on WDET on Thursday in Detroit, uh, and uh, Stephen Henderson is the host of the show. It's a great show. He does the op-ed page for the Free Press. And uh, we had a good conversation about all this, and sure enough, white privilege came up in the questions. And this guy called in and said, well, uh, let's just all get along, and if we all just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, we'd be cool, right? So I said, so I'm here, and this may shock you, but I was there in Detroit for my 50th high school reunion. <laughs> and I'm helping all these old people up the stairs. <laughs> I thought, who are these people? Oh my goodness. But I went and I traced back to some of the places I live. One is Redford Township. Went back to the house. So here's the bootstraps in Redford Township. Every house in our neighborhood, every single house, was a three-bedroom ranch house uh, led by a World War II vet, like my dad, a Navy veteran, came home. They all got a GI Bill, that's free education. An FHA loan, that's a free loan. And my government made my white family middle class. When you have an education and a, and a house, you're middle class. Black GIs didn't get the same thing. My white dad got that, but the black GIs didn't. Jim Crow prevented that, and, and that didn't happen. 
in Redford Township. Baby boomer, that's structural white privilege. It's personal, it's structural, and most of us as white people, I was on the metro in Detroit, the airport, and I'm on this uh, moving sidewalk, you know, I mean moving, what do they call it, moving stairway, right? And I said, this is like white privilege. You're just standing here. (laughs) But you're moving. Looking at all the people around you and thinking about their troubles and you're just standing there. But you're moving. But you're moving. So what I want to say, being theological, is that the whole idea of whiteness is something we created. It's a social construct to justify what we do with slavery. It's a lie. When I would do anti-racism training for white people, or as Ta-Nehisi Coates says, well, those people who think they're white, think about that one. I would try to get them to identify with their European ancestries. I could never do it, so I'd make jokes. I'd say, you know, you Italians, you just remind me of you Germans. You're just exactly alike. And they'd laugh and laugh. Or you Swedes, you know, you're, you're just like the Irish. <laughs> they'd laugh. I said, you must be like each other, because when you got to America, you all became white people. The idea of promising racial difference and betterment, original sin. Promise built into all of our structures, everything that we're doing, policing, criminal justice. So please don't any, in the question time, one question I don't want you to ask. I'm not a racist, am I? Please. Flint, Michigan taught us that racism is in the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the toxicity of a culture. No, 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 not every white person in this room. There's a lot of white people here. (laughs) Not every white person in this room is responsible for everything bad that was ever done to a person of color. But here's the principle. If you benefit from oppression, You are responsible for changing it. If you benefit, you are responsible for changing it. Now, whiteness is this crazy idea. It's an ideology, it's a myth, it's a lie. But it's also, I want to suggest, an idol an idol. So white Christianity is an idolatry. So I'm on Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough and Eddie Glaude, who does African American Studies at Princeton. We were on together, and Eddie Glaude says to Joe Scarborough, you know, what I love about Jim's book, he talks about the idolatry of white Christianity. Joe says, I better read that book. I sure don't get that. And he doesn't. (laughs) But what do idols do in the Bible? Idols separate people from God. 
So I want to suggest, I'm just getting theological here. I want to, get, I want to suggest that the whole idea of whiteness, that we, uh, when whiteness, there's a, a good documentary I saw at my kid's school uh, last week, a workshop with kids from New York High School for a year. And, and, and whiteness, the kids of color would say, it's like the norm, it's like, it's like normal, it's like everything's judged by that. And that's what we all feel. That's the, when, when that's going on, uh, uh, it's like people are living a lie and they don't even know it. So I talk to young people all the time who just want to stop living the lie. You know? Now, we're going to stay theological for a minute. Go from Genesis, let's go to Galatians. Chapter 3, you've heard these words. You're all clothed in Christ. This is a Christian crowd, I've heard. You've all clothed in Christ. And, and there is no longer Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You've heard that? Here's what you probably didn't know. I didn't know. That Galatians 3.28 text was a baptismal formula, a baptismal liturgy in the early church, meaning every new convert who came to be baptized heard them reading that text. Now think about this. What they're saying is these are the, always the divisive factors among human beings, race, class, gender. These are the Galatians factors. Always these issues. So what we're saying here is we're a new community that follows after Jesus Christ, and we're called the body of Christ. And what we're doing here is we are working every day to overcome those barriers. That's what we do. That's who we are. So if you don't want to do that, you better go somewhere else. Because that's what we do here in this thing called the body of Christ. So at Antioch, they were called Christians for the first time, and Antioch was known for all these ethnicities who were brought together, and they became one body. Now, here's the most, political, most important political fact in America. One fact, underneath everything else. By 2030 or 40, we are no longer a white majority nation. We're a majority of minorities, and for the first time since Europeans discovered America by conquering indigenous people, first time since then, we've not been a white majority nation. That's underneath all of our politics. Certainly underneath this presidential election. Underneath immigration. Underneath our educational system. Underneath our economy. It's underneath everything because a whole lot of us white folks are not ready to navigate that 
place to what I call the bridge to a new America. I want to tell you, the old white folks that I just had a reunion with <laughs> from Southfield, we were all white. Southfield's a black school now. We went to school, got a tour, and I'll tell you, those, my old classmates, they're not ready for this. There's a thing I call white fragility. <laughs> Pretty deep. I want to know if a new generation is ready for this or not. And who's going to navigate? Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but somebody has to navigate the path, the bridge, to a new America. Somebody's got to navigate that. Somebody's got to help create the space. Now, I don't know if we're going to do it. I really don't know. But I would say that the space, the social space, the social sector, the, the place that could most help navigate this country to a new demographic, that social space, more than any other space, could be churches, the faith community. But we don't clap yet because we haven't done it. But for social space, we could do that. Are we going to is the question. There's a new guy, William Barber, who runs the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, a dear friend of mine. Uh, I, I love his phrase, oh, I'd like you to meet Master James Crow Esquire. Master James Crow Esquire isn't like the old Jim Crow. This guy's not wearing sheets and a hood and lynching sites. This guy is in legislatures, including Michigan. He's in back rooms at companies. And he knows, Master James Crow Esquire, that he can't prevent that changing demographic in America. He knows he can't change that. That's happening now. He can't stop it. What he can do is block it obstruct it, try and veto that new demographic from changing this country. And he's doing it strategically. He's got, he's got five, five points to his plan. One's called racial gerrymandering. Racializing congressional districts, that's how they defeated immigration reform. A year and a half, we had a majority of Democrats, independents, Republicans, evangelicals, and get ready, white evangelicals, in favor of fixing our broken immigration system. And I had a meeting with the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives, with six faith leaders, th three Catholic bishops, and three of us evangelical leaders. And they promised us they'd bring this up for a vote. It passed the Senate, and we knew they knew it passed the House. But Speaker Boehner, when those gerrymandered districts that had no minorities in them at all said, don't let this come up for a vote, he caved in to them and broke his promise to the faith community. 
Second, you make immigration reform now not about an earned path to citizenship, but just maybe, maybe, maybe legalizing a few workers, maybe. Well, that's 11 million brown votes you don't have to deal with now. Third, Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow, read it. How mass incarceration we knew was racially disparate, white drug use, black drug use, exactly the same, but incarceration overwhelmingly brought black and brown, not white. Well, we knew that. We didn't know that was going to be purposely linked to massive voter disenfranchisement of black and brown prisoners when they come out of jail for nonviolent drug offenses that are now felonies. She taught us that. Massive numbers of people. Fifth, fourth, voter regulations. You might have heard, I hope you saw, that this North Carolina new voter regulations, since they gutted the Supreme Court Voting Rights Act, they gutted that in Shelby, and so now there's new regulations. And a court now has said, we're, we're overturning that, shutting down that, because those regulations, the language of the court, not sojourners, but the court, said this was targeted surgically against black voters. Voter regs in 15 states designed to disenfranchise Black voters, I call this the Matthew 25 voter suppression project. Because <laughs> my conversion passage was Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger, I was in prison, and you weren't there for me. Lord, when do we see you? As you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. All these voter regs are aimed at the most poorest, vulnerable people in the country. Let's call it the Matthew 25 voter suppression project. So we're going to call for clergy with collars and congregations to be at polling places all over the country with the lawyers protecting vulnerable voters in this election. In this election. So I want us and I want to see you all, because you're the generation to decide whether the churches are going to be leadership spaces or not. Uh, whether we're going to do this, because this is, this is finally, again, I'm going to get theological. This is about not just politics or an election. This is about our baptism. Do we believe that we are baptized into a new community where all are made in the image of God? Are we brothers and sisters in Christ? Or finally, are we just term determined by our cultural identity? I am an evangelical. And my wife and my friends just say, why do you keep calling yourself that? But I want to ask, are white evangelicals going to be more white or evangelical? What's our identity as Christians? That's, and I want to tell you, black, Hispanic, Asian American, Native American Christians are watching white Christians to see what they're going to do. Not just this fall, but I'm talking about this future of this country. 
we need to build that bridge to a new America. And I, after all these town meetings, I'm actually pretty hopeful that it can happen. But this is the choice we have to make. So my son, Jack, who's now 13, I remember when he was in the fifth grade at John Eden Elementary School, uh, they were studying immigration. And they invite dads and moms in who are dealing with, um, with uh, the issue they're talking about in class. So I got invited. And so I had Jack's class in front of me, public school class in Washington, DC. And I said, you know, there are 11 million undocumented people in this country. Uh, and, 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 and they're undocumented immigrants. They can't get health care. They can't get police protection. And with 1,000 deportations every day, they're having their families broken up. And, and the class says, oh, we got to fix that. That's wrong. Congress should fix that. Have you talked to them? <laughs> I said, yeah, we've talked to them. What do they say? They say their constituencies are afraid. And they said, afraid of what? And then it hit me. I look at this public school class, and, they're, and I coach most of these kids in Little League Baseball. They're African American. They're Latino. They're Asian American. They're Native American. They're white. They're Somali. They're, they're, they're everything. And I said, they're afraid of you. They're afraid of us. Why are they afraid of us? Because you look like the America we're becoming. You look like the new America, and they're afraid of that. And they said, why are they afraid of that? I said, because they don't think it's going to work. Tell me, how's it working? They said, it's working great. It's really cool. I said, well, we got to teach the country. It's really cool. But at a town meeting like this, somebody said, maybe they're afraid it might work. And that's why they're against it. So this is what we have to say. This is, these are some choices now fundamental choices about baptism and about democracy. Baptism and democracy. Are we going to be those who, who, who decide who we are is what that Galatians text says we're supposed to be. It's not admirable to be a multicultural church. It's expected. It's essential. So, and then, do those people get involved in making sure there's voter protection? Or a criminal justice system where justice is put back into the criminal justice system? Or I tell my, I, I did a column last week about how I want white parents now and white grandparents to have the talk with their kids, their white kids, and tell their kids that their black classmates and teammates are having this other talk with their parents. I want them to know they're having the talk, and I want them to know their black classmates and teammates are being targeted, racially profiled by police. Undoubted data true. I want the white kids to know that. So, and they say, it'll make them uncomfortable. It'll make them mad. Yeah, 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 it will. That's the point. <laughs> so I'm being interviewed by a reporter in my home office about the book and white privilege. 
what do you mean white privilege? Well, Luke just walked in the door with Cameron, his teammate from the baseball team, and doing homework. I said, they're doing homework. They're going to go to practice in a few minutes. And they're going to walk out the door. And Luke and Cameron, who's African-American, they both know that Cameron is not as safe as Luke. Any door in Washington, D.C., they know. And you know what? It pisses both of them off. Because if you have athletes for kids, you learn that their best friends are their teammates. Always. So who's crossing our thresholds? Who do our kids have playdates with or not? Who's sleeping over? Who do you go to when you're in trouble? Who do you go to when you want to talk about your hopes and fears for your kids? 72% of white Christians this past year, 72% said in a poll, the shootings of young African Americans are isolated incidents. That's what they said. 82% of black Christians said they're part of a pattern and part of our lives. Are the white Christians saying the black Christians are lying or exaggerating? No, here's the problem. 75% of white people in America have not one significant relationship of color in their social circle, not one. Our racial geography separates us, so we don't know about our hopes and fears for our kids. Racial geography, including the racial geography of, of education, got people in this room who could tell you about the racial geography of education in Grand Rapids. Racial geography is not an accident. It's policy. It's designed that way to keep us apart and keep us from hearing each other's stories. I'll close with a story that came up yesterday in Detroit, my hometown. Um, how all this began for me was, was in my hometown of Detroit. So I'm now a teenager, kind of getting up to where some of you are in age, and I'm listening to my city. I'm reading the papers, I'm hearing the news, I'm having conversations. And something seemed really big and really wrong in my city, in my country, and nobody in my white church, my white school, my white world, would talk about it. Nobody would talk about it. You're too young to ask those questions. When you're older, you'll understand. Or we don't know why it's that way here, but it's always been that way. Only, only honest answer I got was, if you keep asking those questions, son, you're going to get in lots of trouble. That proved to be true. <laughs> so I went into the city, and I took jobs alongside young guys like me, who were born in Detroit, like me, but they're black and I was white. So I went to Detroit Edison, I went there again this weekend, and I drove that drive I always did back and forth every day when I got my driver's license, and I got that job, and I was a janitor at Detroit Edison, because I was making money for college. And I met this young kid named Butch, 
and uh, he was making money to support his family. But we were both, both young guys moving the furniture around, like to see how much we could carry. This is how old I am. We had elevator operators, <laughs> real people, uh, who when they were sick or on vacation, Butch and I would be put in the elevators. Now when you're an elevator operator, the law gives you a break in the morning and the afternoon because your head would start to spin all the time. So on my breaks, I go in his elevator, ride him down with him, talk, talk, talk. His break comes into mine, talk, talk, talk all day. And he takes me home to meet his family, his mother and his siblings, his father had passed. She told me about her, the men in her family and their experience with the police in Detroit. Grandfather, father, husband who passed, and now Butch. And she said this, she said, so I tell my kids, if you're lost and can't find your way home, and you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then find your way home. When she said that, my mother's words echoed in my head to her five kids. I remember this as vividly standing here as I did that night 50 years ago. You were lost, my mother said. Can't find your way home? Look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and he'll bring you home. I've learned most about the world by being in places I was never supposed to be and knowing people I was never supposed to know. That's what changes us and that's what takes us out of these bubbles that other people create to make themselves wealthy and powerful and keep us just going along, just going along. So when I look forward to whatever happens in this election, we, we got these things to deal with right afterwards, no matter what. And uh, I, just, I just really think there's a new generation that wants to build a bridge to a new America, and I, and I felt that when I got to climb up the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on the big anniversary, 50th anniversary, and the president is there, and the first lady, and the kids, and all these foot soldiers who marched 50 years ago got beaten and bloody almost to death. John Lewis, member of Congress now, was almost killed on that bridge. And they walked across that bridge against the sheriff, Jim Clark, the sheriff, and all his thugs to get voting rights. We walked top of the bridge, and John Lewis, he's a hero of mine, now a member of Congress, tears in our eyes, giving each other a big hug, and I said, what's our bridge now for my kids? You walked across the bridge for voting rights. What's our bridge now? I think our bridge is building, building to this whole new demographic of what America's becoming. And so my final text, because you're a theological group, is the end of the story in Revelation. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They worship and they will no longer hunger, they thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
and God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. At the end of time, there's never going to be and shouldn't be a post-racial society. That's no goal. Here we are. The end, end of the story was in their languages and peoples and tribes, in all our rich diversity, we're finally all together. Worshiping God. All together. All together. That's the end of the story. So the question is, are we going to be the ones who act on what we say we believe, decide to become who we're supposed to be, be willing to speak the truth to power multiracially in this country, and then to decide that finally, in the end, all lives don't matter until black lives matter. Thank you very much. We now turn the conversation from the national to the local. We will hear from two resident experts on race, racism, and racialization in West Michigan. Alicia Marr is Associate Professor of Sociology at Calvin College. Dr. Marr's research includes uh, transracial adoption, but also extends to consider the intersectionality of race, class, and gender. Micah Edmondson is pastor of New City Fellowship Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Southeast Grand Rapids. Reverend Dr. Edmondson has conducted extensive research on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Theology of Suffering. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Marr and Reverend Edmondson. Hello. So this is my eighth year teaching here at Calvin, and any student who has taken a course with me is probably expecting a very detailed PowerPoint with graphs and charts. And uh, because I was asked to speak about the cultural climate, the multicultural climate here at Calvin, I really felt that um, as part of the community, not just someone studying the community, that I would rather um, uh, give you a statement about um, my initial perceptions uh, when I came to Calvin, some of the challenges that I've had, but uh, also some hope for the future. Prior to Calvin, I had taught at a number of secular colleges and universities. And uh, teaching about diversity and equality, some of the students in these courses would ask things like, um, why should I care about the lives of others? Um, why, why should I care about inequality? Because inequality is essential for capitalism. We really need someone to do the jobs no one wants to do in order for other people to profit. And it was a struggle for me because even though I tried to appeal to this kind of common human value of kindness and empathy, I, I couldn't necessarily come right out with my faith and say, well, because they're image bearers of God, or uh, that, uh, that you know, we're supposed to love others as Christ loves us. Um, one of the things that I, I really wanted to bring up is that um, it's because we're all sinners, the, we deserve death, right? The wage of sin is death. So everything that we do have is due to the grace of God, right? That, um, that 
when we think about people who are in oppressed situations or privileged situations, those types of things, the people who are in privileged situations are not necessarily there because um, they're better, they did, uh, they, they did things right, and so on and so forth. They're, they're there because of a system that ends up favoring certain groups over others. So when I was in that position, I tried to let my Christian light shine in the secular college and university, but uh, I, really, it, I, I really focused on the implicit message rather than the explicit message, and, uh, and I always thought it would be great if one day I could just open up the Bible and go through the red-lettered sections and look at what Jesus did and, and, and focus on how much Jesus and whatever he was doing was always looking for the least of these, was always looking for the, the sinners, always looking for the disadvantaged. That's how Jesus spent most of his time. Um, but that was something, obviously, I, I couldn't do at a secular institution. But when I was offered the opportunity to teach her at Calvin, I was really ecstatic because I thought, this is great. Um, you know, I know that I'm going to be working with students. Um, the majority of them are, are Protestant and kind of share my faith. And when, um, you know, when I thought about uh, teaching diversity and equality to them, I thought, I can just skip the whole part about why they should care, and we can just get right to <laughs> what we need to do about it. <laughs> um, I was wrong about that. <laughs> uh, I learned that pretty quickly. Uh, I started in 2009, and we had recently, there had been uh, a multicultural racial climate surge, uh, survey that had been done. And uh, one of the things that, uh, some of the trends that they identified were that a notable portion of students felt as if Kelvin spent too much time in racial diversity and they felt pushed into these multiple events about uh, multiculturalism. So uh, comments such as, why do we have Unlearn Week? Why do we, um, you know, why are we required to take uh, a class like diversity and equality? Uh, you know, why, you know, what, when we get together with our RAs, they're always talking about race, those types of things. The other theme was that um, there are some students who felt that this attention to, to race was perpetuating the inequality, that um, by continuing to bring it up, that it was causing friction. And, uh, and, and they, they had hoped that Calvin would spend their resources or to spend their time on other programming. The, the, the third thing that was really evident in that, that, that climate surgery, uh, survey was that um, there was a big discrepancy between how students of color viewed Calvin and the, the hospitality and the climate in comparison to white students. And white students, in some of the, the qualitative comments where they were able to kind of express their ideas in, in uh, you know, a sentence or two, would, would, would pretty much say that they felt that the, the students of color were exaggerating um, their experiences of racism. And, and this was, was more than troubling to me. I, um, I, I thought, oh gosh, I, I you know, got here to Calvin, I thought everyone would be on board, and, uh, and, there's, and not, not everyone, but there's a, there's a notable portion of people who um, really question why we uh, prioritize uh, diversity, multiculturalism, um, anti-racism here at Calvin.
In retrospect, I should have known this because I'm a sociologist. <laughs> I think I was dreaming. <laughs> uh, I realized that uh, approximately 90% of Calvin students are from the U.S. and we, um, in the U.S., we often socialize people with these American values of individualism, uh, hard work, uh, meritocracy, meaning that whatever you put effort into, um, that's the type of success you're going to have. Uh, so this idea that if you are oppressed or you're going without, it's because you haven't worked hard enough, or if you do have some type of success, uh, that um, it's because you did the right things or you were entrepreneurial or you were creative or had some type of talent. And I understand the reason for these values in, in the U.S. I'm, I'm not putting them down. I realize that in our K-12 systems, we really need that in order to motivate students, right? If, if we, uh, you know, if they get into to kindergarten and we say, well, you, you know, your race, class, and gender is going to be a big factor in, you know, what, <laughs> what happens in your life, <laughs> they, they might give up, right? Um, we, uh, we, we teach them to be uh, goal-oriented, oriented and to, and, to, and to work to achieve um, these different accomplishments. The result of that, though, is this worldview where life, assets, um, human conditions, uh, they're perceived as the culmination of individual choices. I talk to my students a lot about Facebook memes, and a lot of the Facebook memes out there are things such as, if you find yourself in a bad place, it's because you made these wrong choices uh, as you were you know, going through the journey of life. Um, you're not thinking positively enough. Um, you're uh, not uh, necessarily taking advantage of resources, those types of things. And um, I realized that it's really a challenge for students to, to come to a Calvin College with these uh, American cultural values and um, the biblical understanding of humanity as, as people, as, of, as image bearers of God, um, but then also try to learn about racism, right? To, to gain a knowledge and a comprehensive racism. That they, um, when you're trying to integrate all those things, that, um, that there, there are some things that are, you're going to struggle with. And what many students do, um, not all of them, um, but uh, the undergraduate version of myself actually did this, uh, we thought the solution was colorblindness. That um, if we, perceived racism as these isolated incidents happening um, and occurring by just a few either ignorant or evil people that, um, that we could, we, you know, by not being those people, we could handle racism and that we address racism. The other part of that is that um, there is this big focus on um, thinking about our commonalities as children of God and, and being part of the human race rather than um, you know, emphasizing or learning about racial and ethnic differences. Now, um, this worked for a little while. Um, for some people, they, you, know, we, you know, we had a lot of um, kind of kumbaya moments around that, but um, <laughs> the problem is, is that um, when individuals refrain from being racist, uh, that 
obscures the fact that racism is really just part of our systems now, right? That, um, that our um, organizations, whether it's healthcare, economics, politics, sports, all grown in the soil of inequality. And, um, and, and we see that fruit every day, um, that we actually don't need individuals to be actively discriminatory um, and explicitly racist in order for some racial groups to benefit and other racial groups to be disadvantaged. So I see that the students who are um, maybe um, hesitant to go to the programming or um, maybe resentful that maybe there's some type of requirement uh, about it, that, uh, that to some extent they're altruistically motivated. Right? They, they don't want to go because they don't want to cause friction. They really believe that the more we talk about it, the more it's going to be a problem. And that's the reason why I was really impressed with, with Jim's book and, um, and how he lays things out, because he points out the fact that racism is not necessarily just a couple of individuals saying a couple of derogatory things, but it's a pattern. Right? And, and sociologists, we love patterns. Right? That's, what, that's what we do. And, and when we kind of move from that individualistic view to kind of a, 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 a broader macro view, um, we can see that there are, are systems that perpetuate inequality, even though the people in the systems aren't necessarily racist themselves. So uh, a system that encourages police to spend their time patrolling high-risk areas, high-risk areas, um, often results in people of color being more likely to be arrested um, than people who are white and maybe committing the same amounts of crime. I often uh, have my students do um, a, a project on an article about how uh, there's a, uh, a suburb of Seattle and there's a downtown section of Seattle and drug use is rampant in both of them, but because the police are sent to the downtown area, um, then most of their arrests are people of color. And, um, and, and just calling out the fact that, you know, even though a person is doing something wrong, right, so if someone is using drugs, um, the, the injustice there is that there other people are doing drugs and they're less likely to get caught, right? Another system that we have is um, in this capitalist system, we try to uh, reward high-performing schools with more resources. And um, if there's a low-performing school, we kind of financially uh, penalize them. And this is a very race-neutral policy. But because of what Jim was saying about uh, you know, the geographic location of different racial groups, the, uh, the result is that people of color um, have access to lower quality education and people who are white are more likely to be able to access that higher quality education. And again, there's, I, you know, sometimes students say, well, you know, do you think the superintendent is up there thinking, how can we take money away from black schools and bring it to our schools? It's not necessarily the case. It might be the case in some places, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's usually not the case. It's just that this is how the system works. The system was built um, in inequality, and, um, and now you don't even need the people to keep the racism going, right? The, the racism happens on its own. And so um, the problem with colorblindness is that if we don't pay attention to race, then we don't know this inequality exists, 
right? We don't, we, when, we, when we think ideologically about our equality, we have to remember that we live in a fallen world and that, uh, that people are going to be treated differently, that they're going to be awarded resources differently, and that, um, and that we actually need to pay attention to race to see those types of, uh, of uh, dynamics. So, uh, I mentioned the, the multiracial climate sur uh, survey from 2009, and uh, we recently had one in 2015, and um, some of the statistics are that 69% of students of color, 62% of staff, and 44% of faculty of color reported discrimination or harass, uh, harassment based on their race or ethnicity. Now, this is in comparison uh, of a range of, of 12 to 21% of students, faculty, and staff who are white. Additionally, people of color in each of these groups are twice as likely as white students um, or, or people who are white to consider leaving Calvin due to feeling isolated, unwelcome, or alone. They're three to five times likely compared to white students, faculty, and staff to consider leaving Calvin due to a lack of diversity. And um, this, uh, this really hit home um, because uh, one of the, 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 the hopes that I have for being at Calvin is that we're, we are creating, uh, we're working to create a more inclusive environment. Another survey that we did, it was just a faculty and staff about uh, Calvin as a workplace, we found that 64% of white employees consider Kelvin to value diversity of cultural backgrounds, personal styles, and ideas. And this is comparison to 47% of faculty of color. So there's quite a discrepancy there. And I, I bring these statistics up because I want to talk about the racial climate at Calvin and how its perceptions differ by race, but I also want to um, bring it back to um, Jim's book and where he talks about, he begins by talking about um, as he was growing up, before he actually spent time uh, uh, being intentional about it, he lived, there were two Americas. There was a black America and a white America, right? And that, um, and that um, sometimes people are, who are white have no idea what's going on with, with people of color. The good news, and sociologists often do not have good news, uh, <laughs> a majority of faculty, staff, and students are participating in programming that and indicate that that programming leads to gains in regards to cultural differences as well as racial and ethnic identities. Additionally, we have had many activities um, much of these which are student-led, uh, that create awareness around um, racial and ethnic inequality and, uh, and encourage social movements and social activism in these areas. I'm just going to mention a couple of them, I, I, not all of them, but the, the We Are Calvin Two movement, and I don't know if there are still students here who are part of that, um, but they, they um, uh, I saw a couple people do this. <laughs> uh, but um, but that, that student-led movement really um, helped us to see uh, some student perspectives on campus. Um, we've had multiple prayer circles and memorial events, in response to racial inequality and police tactics. 
We've had teach-ins, um, one put on this by the sociology and social work department, uh, another college-wide one we had this summer. And uh, Professor Eric Washington in the history department is teaching a class on Black Lives Matter uh, this fall, which is a one-credit class. And I don't know if it's full yet or not, but uh, you might want to check that out. I also believe that in your program, there are a number of uh, Calvin and West Michigan events that you can also get involved in. Now, I bring these up because my hope is that um, the students who felt like, um, I don't know why we're doing this, um, by going to these events, by, by taking these courses, by um, communicating with other Calvin students and faculty and staff, um, that they are um, motivated to be part of the solution. Uh, some other things from the, uh, the survey were that um, about 29 to 41% of, uh, of, of people at Calvin, both white and people of color, um, either never or seldom challenge others on derogatory comments. That um, they, they, they experience them, they see them, but they don't really do anything about it. Um, 35 to 39% um, of all people um, never or seldom work with others to challenge discrimination. Now, I know that a portion of this are the students who just believe that racism is a thing of the past, right? And, um, and they don't necessarily have an understanding of how, as God's children, we should uh, kind of uh, care for others, that we, we to some extent, are our brother's keeper. Um, I find that these students avoid the voluntary programming, and that's why I think it's important for us to have um, this content mixed in our courses, and so they, they get it whether they like it or not, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it might not make an immediate impact, but they at least have the knowledge. The majority of the students I know actually are able to kind of see the, the biblical um, motivation for caring about other races and um, ethnicities and the discrimination that's going on, but they're just not sure how to get involved. And, um, and this is something that we need to do at Calvin, is just making sure that there's um, a way for students to know where they can get involved, what types of things are out there. Um, I, I said, um, I hope Calvin, with its strategic plan, which prioritizes uh, multiculturalism, um, puts its money where it's a uh, high commitment to discourse on the subject, I mean, mouth is, um, because uh, <laughs> we have a lot of these things where we talk, um, but we wanna make sure that we um, definitely prioritize some social action as well. And then, I think the last group of students kind of gets it, they wanna do something about it, but they're just not sure if they're gonna make an impact. And I want to remind you that Jesus and his disciples, so 13 people, revolutionized the world. That, um, that they were up against great resistance, they were up against a culture that, um, that uh, was trying to thwart all their efforts, and, um, and, and, and now um, we spend hours in classes and um, Sunday mornings um, learning about what they did. I feel like uh, Jim is a great example of how doing work 
in many different areas, whether it's in the schools or the um, being a baseball coach or uh, being a pastor or a social activist, that each of these kind of move the pendulum towards more equality. You may not see it in that moment, but you end up seeing it over time. And I, th I think about John 14, 12, uh, and the fact that, um, you know, if, if Jesus was able to create this revolution, and he says, if we believe in him, we will do even greater things than these, then, um, then I know that we can make a difference. I know that, um, it's, especially these students who have a lot of energy and, um, and more time than they think they have, and, <laughs> um, and a lot of passion can do these things. And so I'm just gonna end on uh, a quote from Margaret Mead, which is kind of what keeps me going day to day. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Here comes the mass exodus, all right. Praise <laughs> the Lord. That's all right. There's no more condemnation. <laughs> that's, the, that's all right. That's all right. I understand. Well, good evening, Calvin College. Oh, come on, somebody. Good evening, Calvin College. All right. All right. All right. It's, it's all right to talk back. I, uh, I am a Presbyterian doctrinally, but uh, I'm a Black Baptist culturally. And so it's all right to talk back. You can respond. Um, we have heard some amazing um, truth uh, going forth uh, on this night, and um, I just want to call our attention to a particular theme that, uh, that uh, Jim brought up uh, before and brings up in his, in his book, um, and that theme is the beloved community. The beloved community. It's amazing how the Lord not only calls us to look backwards uh, to creation, to, to, to know God's will for us. And not only does he call us to look in, uh, at ourselves today, at who we are in Christ to know God's intention for us, but he also calls us to look forward uh, at what God will make us to be at the new creation. In Micah chapter 4, the Lord reveals an eschatological vision, an end times vision of the household of God that was meant to transform who the Lord's people were in their day in light of who they would become on the last day. Micah saw a day in which the redemptive glory of God would bring a diverse people from every tribe and nation and tongue streaming to the house of the Lord, streaming to the mountain of the Lord in the household of God. And Micah said, he shall judge, the Lord himself shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. In other words, the Lord himself would ensure that not only racial reconciliation would come to pass, but also, listen to this, racial justice. He would, he would decide disputes. Racial justice, racial repentance, and repair by the power of the gospel. 
And even the longest and most bitter ethnic hatreds and conflicts would not just be covered over and ignored, but actually healed. Unless we over-spiritualize this vision and think that it had no bearing on our today, unless we turn from the vision and think that that's social stuff and not spiritual stuff, the Lord ended the passage by saying, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In other words, we must practically and socially live today in light of who God will make us to be tomorrow. The people may walk in the name of the God of ethnocentrism, but we must walk in the name of the Lord. The people may walk in the name of nationalism and nativism, but we must walk in the name of the Lord. Right? The people, the people, the people might walk in the name of, of the market and all of their various agendas, but we, in the household of God, have a higher calling. Martin Luther King Jr., and all roads lead back to Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. was so gripped by this eschatological communal vision that it became the very capstone and organizing principle of his entire theology, ethics, and social action. Borrowing language from American philosopher Josiah Royce, King called this renewed society the beloved community a fully just and integrated society where the ethic of Christ's self-giving sacrificial love reigns and his resurrection proved the triumph of justice. This vision became a powerful uh, motivation and a, and a powerful hope that, that, that empowered freedom fighters throughout the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. From the musty confines of southern jail cells, freedom fighters would, fighters would pray through and clap through and sing through, oftentimes to the consternation of their jailers with a view toward the hope held out in the beloved community. They would sing, hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around Turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on a walking and keep on a talking, walking into freedom land. You see, that's the eschatological vision set before them. And just as in Micah's day, and I, uh, the beloved community also became for King and the other freedom fighters during the movement, the eschatological norm by which all earthly ethics and social attitudes and policies were to be judged. This was a powerful plumb line. And racial hatreds and policies like Jim Crow and segregation were exposed as wicked precisely because they contradicted this great vision that they'd seen before them. And I would suggest that today, uh, if, if we ever needed the beloved community, uh, if we ever needed that vision, that eschatological vision to remind us of where we're called to be and how far we have strayed from the plumb line, it's today. We, we, we need that vision uh, uh, today. And I believe that that, that that vision impacts us in, in three particular ways. And every good black Baptist preacher's got to have three points. So <laughs> here's my three points. Point number one, 
the eschatological vision calls us beyond the privatized gospel, beyond the privatized gospel. This is, this is one of the very first things that uh, alerted uh, Reverend Wallace that there was something wrong about the theology that he was being taught. If you hear him speak and, and get the opportunity to read his book, and I hope you'll buy it as you have opportunity, uh, you'll find out that, that he, he, he was confronted at an early age with a a distinctly privatized gospel and something did not sit right in his spirit. King also confronted this privatized gospel that was evident in his day. And as he wrote to uh, uh, clergy members in, in Birmingham in his, from, from, in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, he says this, he says, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sidelines in mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say, and it's amazing how, 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 how history has a way of repeating itself, that those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. It's interesting because many Christians today have become selective social antinomians. Hyper-individualism hyper in some Christian circles has led to a truncated and completely privatized view of the gospel that has nothing to say to certain social realities. Right? It's amazing how sin makes us selective, doesn't it? Selective blinders. When it comes to certain issues, we understand that we need to confront the culture, but we suddenly back up when it comes to racialized sin. We call those political issues and not spiritual issues, not theological issues. That's one of the most important things about uh, Reverend Wallace's book is because it calls uh, racism what it is. It is sin. It is sin. And, 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 and our Lord uh, came to... To, to, to defeat sin, to defeat the work of the devil. The scriptures make it very clear to us that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we must uh, apply this gospel not only in a private way to the issues of our sin nature, but also in a public way to the issues of our culture and our world. So because the household of God, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the beloved community are inherently social and communal visions. They call us beyond merely a privatized gospel. Here's the second thing, number, point number two. The beloved community reminds us of human interrelatedness. It reminds us of human interrelatedness. The beloved community reminds us of God's will concerning our, the way in which we relate to one another. This is interesting because in, 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 in Genesis, chapter, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 4, one of the first things that we see sin doing after uh, uh, the fall, after huma uh, the, the, the uh, humans were expelled from the Garden of Eden, was it, 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 it made us forget about human interrelatedness because, because after, after Cain killed his brother Abel, and then and, and, and waltz back in before the presence of the Lord as if what he had done had no impact on worship, as if he could do this thing out here socially and it would have nothing to do uh, theologically. The Lord, the very first thing the Lord confronts him with is not what kind of sacrifice did you bring? 
Not what kind of prayers are you praying? Not, not what kind of hymn are you singing? Not, what, what, not, 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 not all of these things, but the very first question the Lord asked Cain is, where is your brother? And Cain, it's interesting when the Lord asks a question because you, this, is the, this is the omniscient, sovereign God over all creation. You know the Lord knows the answer, but he, he asked the question, <laughs> you see. Cain should have been suspicious. The Lord is asking me a question. And he's asking the question so we will know what is in the heart of, of, of those who would commit such an act. What is the seed that led to this murder? And it is a seed that forgot human interrelatedness. It's a seed that said, am I my brother's keeper? The beloved community reminds us that each and every one of us is our brother and sister's keeper. King explained it this way. He said, we are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. This was his way of affirming that diverse human beings are dependent upon each other and responsible for one another in light of this coming reality. This helps expose the wickedness of xenophobic and ethnocentric and nationalistic attitudes, behaviors, and public policy. It also, it also the interrelatedness of the beloved community also reminds us, listen to this, it's very important, Calvin, that justice is not mutually exclusive. We are oftentimes caught up in the sinful idea that more justice for you means less justice for me. That, that, that if you become a winner in society, then therefore I must become a loser in society. That, that, that if I say black lives matter, somehow that compromises whether all lives will matter. But, 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 but what the beloved community, what this eschatological vision shows us is that, is that, is, is that justice is not a zero-sum game. Remember in Micah's eschatological vision, the Lord judges between a reconciled people. They're all reconciled to the Lord. They're all winners, and yet they can admit I was wrong. I, I, I can be secure enough in this reconciliation with God, secure enough in the gospel to say, I need to repent for the way in which I've treated you, my brother and my sister. And I don't see myself as a loser in repentance. In fact, through repenting, I, I, I become more of a winner. They're all redeemed and reconciled, unless, and yet the, lo the Lord is judging between them, revealing how they were all winners, even as perfect justice is being Fulfilled. And the interrelatedness held out by the beloved community reminds us that, listen, listen, we must all rise together. None of us are free until all of us are free. And this also keeps us looking to and, listen, striving for justice for all members of the household. Brothers can say, listen, not just race issues, but gender issues are also my issues. The haves can say not just race and gender issues, but also class issues are my issues. And so we continue to strive for justice until all of God's people are recipients of justice. And finally, it's a reminder of human somebodiness. Human somebodiness. 
The beloved community in, was closely connected with King's doctrine of somebodiness. He, this letter from a Birmingham jail, King continues, he says this, he says, I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion. What makes a strange, listen to this, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between sacred and the secular. Listen, in, 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 in the beloved community, everybody is considered somebody, not merely in the abstract, but in their physical embodiment, in their physical embodiment. It's, it's interesting because, because that is where oftentimes the, 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 the church uh, is seen uh, as being hypocritical. But because, because uh, it... it God has given the community enough common grace, you see, common grace to understand that justice must be embodied. It's interesting because folks like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's, who's, who's not a Christian, but, 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 but he understands the embodiment of sin, the embodiedness of sin. And, 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 and his, his book, Between the World and Me, he gives a wonderful uh, explanation of, of the embodied uh, nature of sin. And I read that book and I read books like that. I say, man, that's wonderful stuff. How come the church isn't telling that truth? Because if anybody ought to understand the embodiment of sin, it ought to be us. Because we understand that, it, listen, it took a physical body, it took a broken body to actually bear sin and redeem us from sin. So we ought to understand the physical nature of all of this. This is not merely abstract, but justice must be pursued in practical, physical ways. Micah said in his vision that they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The gospel calls us to recognize sin and resist it and pursue justice in embodied ways. The practical dismantlement of the instruments and symbols of hostility. So we must pursue this great vision of the beloved community to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, all I can say is, wow, I feel like I've been in church tonight. Um, I know that we are running late, but we have now moved to the portion of Q&A. We've already have several questions queued up, but there are three ways that you can ask questions today. We have ushers in the audience. If you guys can kind of stand up, I know some people have to go. They have cue cards if you want to submit your questions that way or you can submit them via email, as indicated. Um, well, it's not up on the screen yet, but you can send the questions to ccfw at calvin.edu or hashtag askccfw on Twitter. And so first, before we get into the Q&A, I just want to really thank this esteemed panel for being fearless for being authentic and having the keen ability to unpack race in the constructs of Christianity. That's big. And so if you guys can help me just thank them again.
And so the first question that I'm going to start with is, you use the word sin to describe racism in America, but does it make sense to use that term in our diverse political arena where not everyone agrees on the concept? How do people respond to that word when you use it outside of faith context? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, you know, so, so the truth is the truth, whether or not we acknowledge it, right? And Jesus is Lord, whether or not, you know, we don't make Jesus Lord, Jesus is Lord, right? And so I, I think it's important that we do, uh, that we do, uh, you know, interrelate with folks um, uh, in the sense of making our, our, the concepts that we talk about uh, clear to them so that they will understand. I'm not really caught up on just the words we use, but as long as we help people understand, listen, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think it takes for people to necessarily even be Christian to, to, to have a, a sense that, that something is not right about the ways in which we interrelate to one another, right? And, uh, and, and I, I think that it's interesting that God gives us enough common grace to kind of feel that intuitively. I think that's why folks like Ta-Nehisi Coates, and, and I think before him, uh, who, who did it even more uh, uh, incisively, was Malcolm X. Right? Malcolm X was able to tell the truth that even the church wouldn't tell. And, and it's interesting, the Nation of Islam would, would set up outside of black Baptist churches so that when the congregants left, they got with those congregants and said, hey, look, this is the truth that the folk in the church won't tell you. Right? And because, because even, even, even unbelievers have got enough common grace to see that something is not right. So, I, I, so even, if we don't, even if we don't use the term sin, we can still talk about sin and tell the truth about uh, what the gospel has to say about it. So 250 years of slavery, 100 years of legal segregation, discrimination, and terrorist violence against black lives and bodies, 50 years of a civil rights movement, seven years of a black president, and we are still stuck not been cleansed of this. And uh, sin requires the word from our tradition, repentance. But repentance doesn't mean feeling guilty or sorry. That's that's because you can just feel guilt and shame and sorry and go home and watch TV. Mm -hmm. Repentance, what the word means, you've got to turn around and go in a whole new direction. So for the, and I'm, you know, I named the book America's Original Sin because we've got to go deeper in our conversation than all the social problems. This is a sin against our, I love your phrase, where is your brother? Where is your brother or your sister in this educational system? Where is your brother or your sister? Thank you. And what's happening to young People, young people of color on the street, where is your brother? Is this your brother or your sister? And because we haven't seen that, this is a sin against our brother and sister, but it's a sin against God. Racism is a sin against God. Racism goes to the heart of the gospel, 
and justice and reconciliation is at the core of the message of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Christians have to make clear whether they believe that racial bigotry is a gospel issue mm-hmm. or just another social problem. That's right. We got to make that clear. That's right. And then if it's sin, it requires repentance, which means you're walking in the wrong direction, turn around, it's time to go in a whole new direction. So the use of the word sin, and, and I've been doing this around the country that non-church people know what we mean by sin. And when we talk about our sins mm-hmm. as Christian people, they sure know about that too. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You said the racial geography of education isn't an accident, it's policy. I fully agree with that statement, but it seems overwhelming. Obviously, it won't change overnight, but where and how do we begin to change that? <laughs> Well, as I said, there are people in this room who could uh, lead a couple hour seminar on that. Uh, I, I think we are experiencing now the resegregation of our educational systems. Mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Education, famous decision, over and gone. We are experiencing now the de facto resegregation of our education. And it's based on on geography and, and real estate and banking policies and educational policies and people who want to disrupt and destroy the public school system for their own school systems. And so we got to talk about this for what it is. And these things, see, I don't care so much about what's in the heart of people who want to just, what's at the heart of policy? What's at the heart of our policies that are creating this over and over again. So I think whether it's education, economics, criminal justice, we have to talk about how our policies have created that resegregation in education in particular. It seems that many churches are becoming aware of and talking about social justice, but often it is just that talk and anyone who demands action is largely ignored. Believing that true change will come from within, how can we begin to help our leaders and members be aware of the problem and move toward change? Mm. Mm. What? (laughs) Well, conversation that doesn't lead to action is a waste of time. Yeah. And so conversation is tested by what we do. Last night in Detroit, the whole second half of the, of the forum was what are we gonna do in Detroit mm-hmm. right now? What are we gonna do right here in Detroit? People were convened last night, people made connections last night, they wanted to be resourced last night, and they wanted to be mobilized to make changes in Detroit, mm-hmm. specific and concrete changes. And the Black Youth Project there, part of the Black Lives Matter Matter movement, those young people want specific change. They don't want just talk. So uh, Brittany Packnett, one of my favorite people, one of the leaders from Ferguson, uh, she is a Teach for America leader in St. Louis, decided to not just listen to the stories of her kids, 
every morning about what happened last night, but to go out to the streets with her students. So she faced rubber bullets and tear gas and attacks by the police. And uh, I love the way she says, Jim, we don't need just allies in Black Lives Matter. We need accomplices. Mm-hmm. Accomplices. Accomplices to change these systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would add to that that um, one of the amazing things about churches is that when they want to get something done, they can get something done. When there's a funeral, um, there's definitely a committee of people who will come together and arrange the potluck and um, go visit the family, and it's, um, and it's, it's very structured and organized. Um, recently, my, my church had a, a fundraiser for uh, a person with cancer and needed um, some money for expenses, and I was just amazed at um, how they put together a silent auction and a 50-50 raffle and entertainment and were able to pull that off. If, if we could use those types of things to address some of these racial issues, it would be, it would be extremely powerful. Uh, it's, it's much easier to, um, to, to, to put our minds in, and to grasp helping one individual person that you know, right? That there's, there's a lot of energy behind that. It's, it's more difficult when you say, hey, let's get together and um, try to change the educational system. Uh, the people, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so big, it's so abstract. Um, but I think that's what we, we need to do is kind of operationalize that in our faith communities um, because if it is going to be a priority, um, then we definitely um, have the people who have the skills and the ability to do it. We just need to prioritize it. The Christian day school movement has resulted in segregated schools, purposefully or not. What should they do about it? Christian-based? Christian school systems? Christian day schools. Okay. Oh, my. Is that an issue around here? Yeah. Yeah. Turn to my local partners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, I, think that, I think that we are not, I think that, that people are still not convinced that racial justice is something at the heart of the gospel. I really, I don't think they do because just, the, I mean, the question we had before about, you know, what do you, what do you do to get people to act? Well, when it comes to certain issues, the church has been very active in very practical ways. And they will vote people in and vote people out based on those things, those commitments. But when it comes to these issues, I don't think folks are fully, some folks are not fully uh, convinced that these are really the sanctity of life issues. Um, I think in terms of the Christian uh, school system, uh, they need uh, a broader view of the gospel that actually shows them that uh, issues of, of, of welcoming the sojourner and the stranger and, and actually uh, hospitality are really at, at, at the at really central, key, essential Christian virtues that need to be cultivated and that... Uh, and that um, you know, uh, a cross uh, you know, a cross cultural uh, 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 makeup, uh, a gathering of of people around the gospel is really what the Lord intends. So I think they just had an. I think they need to have an expanded view of what the Lord is actually calling for if they're going to call themselves a Christian school system. 
right? Um, so. I'll just say, I heard in my one day here in talking about homecoming, I heard this issue come up a lot from people of color, asking what, what the Christian school system means for the public school system in a, in a community. And not to understand how those structural realities impact the lives of people on the outside. I mean, if you're talking about issues of diversity and being seriously co committed to them, then you've got to look at the structural things that prevent that diversity from taking root. Yeah. If you don't do do that, you're going to not be successful. That's right. With changing the climate of a school. And. And I think that um, maybe what the, um, the the person who submitted the question might have been referring to is the. Um, Christian schooling requirement for faculty at Calvin and um, this, uh, the idea that there's a number of, of faculty at Calvin who live in the Grand Rapids public school district but um, because they're required to send their children to Christian schools um, though that's fewer resources are um, for the public schools and uh, and more resources for the Christian schools and and what that means uh, I have no solution but I do know that when we uh, make policies and we make them within a context and they might work for that period of time, that as we learn more, as times change, as uh, school of choice um, uh, is now an option um, here in Grand Rapids, those types of things, I think that um, it is something that, uh, that we need to consider, um, particularly in respect to race, class, and gender, and, um, and the relationship between Calvin College and the community. Okay. We have time for one last question. And this question is, what now? What are concrete action steps for white Christians who recognize they have benefited from the oppression of people of color and want to change the way the world works? Uh, I think uh, I think what they can do. Uh, we have a we have a wonderful phrase within our confessional tradition within the Westminster Confession of Faith that says particular sins are to be repented of particularly, right? And so <laughs> I love that. I love That's good. That's <laughs> particular sin. You know, uh, uh, you know. Um, I think it it takes it takes for studying. Uh, the history and, 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 and context of uh, and current uh, instances and, and outworkings of this, this terrible sin of racism and in order to really understand the gravity of what we're talking about here and the ways in which it works itself out. Um, and so first, you know, you need to really, you need to do your homework and you need to, to study this issue. Um, uh, then you ought, to, you ought to make some, this is not an end all, making relationships with, with uh, folks that are uh, impacted by these issues, but that is part of it. You have to have relationships, actual relationships. Uh, the, the scriptures have a, a, an amazing 
uh, instruction on this. They call us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And that's, that calling goes beyond just mere fact-finding, right? Because when you're talking about mourning with those who, mourning, who mourn, what that means is you actually take their burdens onto yourself. And so what you have is you have, you know, the Scripture calls, you know, white suburban men to cry tears with black inner-city moms, you know, who are scared to death that their son is going to be the next Trayvon Martin, and actually mourn with them and cry tears with them and say, hey, look, I, I may not understand this all the way, but I'm going to cry with you because I understand that it impacts your life, and the Scripture calls me to weep with you. So, uh, so that's, that, that's, I think that's part of it uh, uh, as well. Uh, so, so you have, you know, a studying of the issue. You have a, a kind of an em empathetic uh, uh, um, connection with it, and you mourn with those who mourn. Also, uh, you need to take some practical actions. Um, you, you, you need to find ways to, to try to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to turn the pattern of your living uh, in, in your personal relationships, uh, in the way in which you uh, interact with your, uh, live with your money, uh, in, your, uh, in, 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 in every area of life. Find the ways in which you are not living in, in keeping with the gospel and, uh, and you turn. It's interesting, uh, if you look, and I'm going to finish it with this. Uh, if, you, if you were to look at Galatians chapter 2, uh, Galatians chapter 2 is fascinating. We, Jim quoted Galatians 3 earlier, but Galatians 2 is a really fascinating text because it, it shows when, uh, when, when the Apostle Paul confronted the Apostle Peter to his face, okay? And he confronted him over an issue of, of ethnocentrism. Right? And it's interesting the way, I mean, you know, Peter was, uh, he came to Antioch, this place that was filled with a bunch of Gentiles, and he had gotten with them some Jews, and he began to sort of distance himself from uh, the Gentiles. This was ethnocentrism. This was racism right at its core, right? And, uh, and it's interesting because Paul, in a very public way, said, and I confronted him, I, I, I opposed him to the face. And then he, and then he says this. He says, he says because... because he was c clearly condemned. He was clearly in the wrong because his actions were out of step with the gospel. Right? Like, you know, it's a, I mean, he, it, it, that makes, I mean, it just, he makes it clearly feel his behaviors were out of step with the gospel. And I know a lot of people may consider where you sit and who you eat with to be a, just a social reality. But Paul says, no, no, this is a gospel reality. And the way you're behaving is contradicting the gospel itself. So, so we've, got to, we've got to look for the ways in which we are living out of step with the gospel and ask the Lord to give us grace to, to repent and come in line with the gospel. I, my advice would start out with listen, listen, listen. That is the, um, the message that I hear so often from our students of color about having their experiences dismissed, about um, other people not understanding um, the, the experiences they have, how, how they can't just get into a car and, 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 and drive down to Florida for spring break because they have to think about the states and how um, they're, they're going to be received and where they're going to eat and those types of things. And I, I um, like Micah was just saying, um, just having those relationships and listening. 
The second thing I would say is wherever you're at in your life, whether you're a harried college student or you are um, a faculty member here at Kelvin or you're an accountant somewhere um, or um, you know, maybe uh, you, know, you, you, know, you work at the mall kiosk, there's always opportunities. And when you listen and you have the awareness, you start to change your behavior. That, um, that uh, you know, when you are thinking about renting out a house or, um, or uh, you know, have it, having an event somewhere, we usually just do what we always do with the people that we know. And, um, and we have to start changing those things. And, um, and, and, and sometimes it's just a little bit of a time. Uh, our, one of our big things here at Calvin is vocation. And uh, sometimes students, when they learn about racism, they seem so overwhelmed because they feel like they have to fix it all themselves. They, they, they come to me and they go, well, what do I do now? Right? Like, I know about all these things and I want to fix them all. Uh, <laughs> The thing is, is that God has a plan for all of us, right? It's not that, you know, there's just going to be, you know, one person here that's going to go fix all the racism and the rest of us get to sit by, that we, we all play a little part. And that, um, and that some of us are going to be called into full-time ministry um, or some of us are going to be called into full-time activism. But there's a lot of us who will be called into to, to jobs that, and into positions, into hobbies and families and those types of things, which don't necessarily um, lend themselves specifically to social action, but that the listening and the awareness will help you to see that wherever you're at, that you can make an impact. And, and, and I just uh, ask that you take advantage of that and just recognize that um, you don't need to do everything, but you should figure out what is my part and do your part. I think white folks got to quit confusing their cultural identities with Christian identity. Mm-hmm. Because for example, you know, it just doesn't work to try and play basketball in wooden shoes. You just can't. Do that. <laughs> and you can't do that. You know? uh, We've tried. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, which is your acceptable worship. Mm -hmm. Cultural conformity is a violation of true worship. Mm -hmm. We're worshiping our cultural identities. It's a violation, Romans says, of our worship. So I know this sounds hard, but repentance for white people in America means dying to whiteness. Just sit with that, take it home, dying to whiteness, which is an idolatry, which is a sin, which traps us in a lie. What does that mean? That's personal reflection that will take, you, take us a long way. But then it's got to be public, because racism is personal and systemic. So uh, we don't stop with the personal, it's systemic. So practically, uh, I said to white grandparents and parents, talk to your white kids about what's, what happens to your black classmates and teammates with the police. Uh, I want to see white clergy go with black clergy to their police chiefs and sheriff's offices and say, we got a whole new commission on policing. It's really, I got a whole chapter on this in the book. It's really excellent. 
Law enforcement people I've talked to around the country think this is the best thing so far. Because you know what? The way to protect blue lives is community policing. Mm -hmm. So blue lives matter too. Mm -hmm. But unless we move from, move police from warriors to guardians, mm -hmm. they won't be safe either. Warriors to guardians. So these are things that we can change. So go to that police chief and say, hey, we'd like to give you this new policing commission report. It's really good. We'd like you to read it. We'll all be back next month to see how you're going to implement it in this town. So be practical, personal, and systemic. And and when we're talking about ed education, talk about ending the, the school to prison pipelines mm -hmm. in our school systems. What that is and what that means. So on a personal level, it's gonna be, it's gonna be letting ourselves be transformed, entering in new, new relationships, and then those relationships can change things. I mean, <laughs> I was in South Africa during all the difficult days in the 80s, hanging out in black townships, and no one thought that that would ever change. I was there for the inauguration of, 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 of Nelson Mandela, and I watched the change before my eyes that I couldn't believe. Uh, I've seen gang members come together for truces. I've seen pastors walk in the streets in Boston that, that dropped youth homicide by 70% in that city. Uh, we are people who are used to changing big things. Mm -hmm. And Hebrews says it well, uh, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Mm -hmm. I've seen too much change in my life and around the world not to believe that all we're dealing with here can be changed. But hope means this. Hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you also to our many sponsors, African and African Diaspora Studies at Calvin College, Ambrose at WIMCAT, the Asian Studies Program at Calvin College, Brazos Press, the Calvin Center for Community Engagement and Global Learning, the Calvin College Campus Store, the Calvin College Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, the Calvin College History Department, the Calvin College Office of the Provost, the Calvin College Department of Sociology and Social Work High-Ends Fund, the Calvin College Student Life Division, the Calvin Theater Company, the Christian Reformed Church's Office of Social Justice, Event and Tech Services at Calvin College, the Paul B. Henry Institute at Calvin College, and Schuler Books and Music. You can find more recordings from the 2016 Fall Writer Series and learn more about the work of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing at our website, ccfw.calvin.edu.